the question, how has God's Word changed you? How has God's Word changed you? Does the hearing of God produce in you godliness? Does, by the hearing of God's Word, are you a different person? So when somebody comes in to our church and perhaps isn't part of your, maybe obviously not part of your socioeconomic category, how do you treat them? Perhaps maybe they are obviously engaged in activities. Maybe they may even be... uh, not sober. How has God's word changed you? How does it affect the way you live? Does it affect the way you treat your brother or sister? How has it changed the way you treat your neighbor? How is it changing you in regards to living your life in a manner that would be pleasing to God? Are you reflecting the nature of God upon hearing the word of God? Let me ask you this. Was there a day when you received God's word with joy? But now that has all changed. Today we're going to talk a little bit or talk quite a bit about the word of God and hearing the word of God. One of the very most more common statements of Jesus, and we'll read that here today, is you who have ears to hear, hear. We see that, of course, in Jesus, and the, the, the Apostle John picked that up. And Jesus told him when he was speaking to the seven churches in the book of Revelation, you who have ears to hear, hear what the Spirit of God says to the church. And so today we want to talk about the Word of God and hearing the Word of God, and not just hearing the Word of God, but believing the Word of God, and not just hearing and believing the Word of God, but hearing the Word of God, believing the Word of God, and doing what God has said. And so, just a preview then where we will hope to go today. My, my message today is really relatively simple. And it's this. Here's our preview. The centrality of God's Word in the Kingdom of God. Last week we talked a little bit about the Kingdom of God. What is the Kingdom of God? If you were not here, um, it has been uploaded. Um, It is online, sermon.net slash corp. You can get it through our website. But we talked about what is the Kingdom of God? And how or who is a citizen of that kingdom. And that, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time there. But we want to talk today about then the centrality of God's word in the kingdom of God. A couple things then that are going to come out. Maybe we haven't thought about this, but here it is explicit. And that is receiving the truth of God's word is a privilege. Have you ever thought about that? That if you've received God's word, it is a privilege. If you are believing God's word and doing God's word, you are a graced person. And ultimately, that the reception of the hearing and the believing and the doing of God's word will be evident because there will be fruit born from the hearing of God's word. In other words, God's word produces fruit. You all know that passage in Isaiah, right? The one that says, just as the rain comes down and waters the ground, so my word goes forth and it produces what I say it's going to produce. In other words, when God's word comes forth, it produces stuff. See, God just doesn't speak with no effect. When God speaks, stuff happens. Worlds come into existence. Stuff that wasn't there all of a sudden is. Blind men see and lame men walk and dead men rise up. And those of you who were lost become found. And those who by reason of your trespasses and sins come alive. All by the word of God. And so let's go ahead and let's read our text today. And then we'll spend some time seeing um, its truthfulness in our lives this day. So... Uh, Luke chapter 8, I'm going to begin with verse 4. 
And when a great crowd was gathering and people from town after town came to him, he said in a parable, A sower went out to sow his seed, and and as he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air devoured it. And some fell on the rock, and as it grew, it withered away, because it had no moisture. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and and choked it. And some fell into good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. As he said these things, he called out, He who has ears, let him hear. And then his disi- and when his disciples asked him what this parable meant, he said, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. Now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. The ones along the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts, so that they may not believe and be saved. And the ones on the rock are those who heard, who, when they heard, receive it with joy. But these have no root. They believe for a while, and in time of testing fall away. And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear. But as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. As for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart, and bear fruit with patience. No one, after lighting a lamp, covers it with a jar or puts it under a bed, but puts it on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. For nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be known and come to light. Take care, then, how you hear. For to the one who has, more will be given, and from the one who has not, even what he thinks he, that he has will be taken away. Then his mother and his brothers came to him, and they could not reach him because of the crowd. And he was told, Your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. But he answered, My mother and my brother are those who hear the word of God and do it. And thus ends the reading of God's holy and inspired word. I want to approach this. This may be one of the more familiar passages of, uh, in the Bible. If you've been in church for very long, you've probably heard the parable of the sower and the soils. And uh, it is certainly perhaps maybe one of the top three um, popular um, parables. But I want to begin this one at the end because I believe this very last statement is the statement that ties All of those verses together. My mother and my brother are those who hear the word of God and do it. So one might ask, how does one enter into or how does one have a relationship with Christ? How can one enter in and become a related to Jesus Christ. And this is going to be important for us, and I guess that's why I'm starting here instead of ending here. I'm starting here because one of the things we've learned is that one enters into a relationship with Christ. Well, there's a couple ways we don't. One we know is not through sacramentalism. That is, one does not enter into a relationship with Christ through the sacraments, or perhaps um, maybe like baptism. All right. You do not become a believer through baptism. You do not even become a believer through the taking of communion. I know the Roman Catholic Church, I believe, has seven sacraments that one must partake of to be justified. We are not justified and we do not enter into the family of God through our sacraments. We do not enter into the kingdom of God even by birth. Jesus told Nicodemus, you need to be born again. You have the right heritage. You have the right lineage. But it isn't going to do you any good. In fact, what you need is not better, not better bloodline. You need a whole new birth. And John the Baptist told the people, he said, Don't say to me that you have Abraham as your fathers. God is able to raise up these stones and make sons of Abraham. Paul picks that up. And he says, we're justified not by being of the line of Abraham, our father, but we are justified by being, uh, not by being of his bloodline, but being, uh, emulating his faith. So it's not through sacrament, it's not through birth, it's not even through hearing the word of God. Now I hesitated when I was included that. 
And the reason I say that is because hearing has no value unless it's accompanied by faith. How many people do you know who have heard the word of God but are not, have not entered into the kingdom of God? Maybe you've told them the word of God over and over and over again. Just hearing the word of God did not translate them into becoming children of God. Nor is even hearing the word of God and believing the word of God. It's a little more serious. For instance, James tells us faith, uh, that the devils believe. They've heard and they believe. But they are not children of God. I have friends who believe the word of God. But they have never acted upon it. You can tell them that Jesus died for your sins. They believe. I believe that historically there was a man by the name of Jesus. And yes, he died upon a cross. I believe that 100%. Hearing has no value unless it's accompanied by faith, and faith has no value unless that faith puts God's word into practice. This is what James says. So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And this is why James also uh, admonishes us in chapter 1, verse 22, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. And of course, you believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. It's amazing. The demons even shudder. Too many people hear the word of God and do not shudder. And then Paul tells us in Galatians, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. And so we begin this message with the ideas, how does one become an heir of Christ? How does one enter into his bloodline into a relationship and Jesus then tells us my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and he didn't stop there did he and do it and so our text begins then having established that like I said that I believe that final statement ties this whole um Section together, and this then begins with a great crowd gathering around Jesus and people from town after town coming after him. And he says, and he begins to speak a parable, and he tells the parable of the sower. And the, the sower then goes and he casts seed, and uh, and there are four different types of soil that the seed falls into. He talks about how seed falls along the hardened path and is trampled underfoot and how the birds of the air devour it, how some seed fall on the rock and as it grew it, gets, uh, it has no moisture so it withers and how some fell among thorns and the thorns grew up and it choked out and some fell upon the good soil and it heated. And then he says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And upon this statement, he who has ears to hear, let him hear, his disciples asked Jesus, What does that mean? In other words, they had an understanding that he's not talking about agriculture. He's not talking about growing plants. He's telling us something else. He's telling us some sort of spiritual truth, but he's using this physical or this very natural story to communicate something to us. And so the disciples ask him, what does the parable mean? Let me begin this. A parable is just simply a... A story, the, the word parable just simply means, you know, a, like para, right? Alongside of, like a parallel line, there are lines alongside each other. So para, uh, parable, bole is the Greek word for to cast or to throw. So it's to cast alongside of. So what he's doing is he's casting a story alongside a spiritual truth so that you can understand what the spiritual truth is. So he's just throwing a story out there that comes alongside a spiritual truth so that people can understand this spiritual insight. And the disciples had the good sense to know that this is a parable, that this is not a lesson in agriculture, but it is some sort of spiritual communication. Jesus is telling us something about the kingdom of God. And so they say, and when his disciples asked him what the parable meant, he begins to explain. But before he gives them an interpretation and tells them what the parable means, listen to what he says. This is an amazing statement, and I believe it causes a lot of people to struggle. 
Because this is a very un-Jesus-like statement, and yet it is his statement. To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. That just doesn't sound very Jesus-like, does it? What? To you it's been given to understand, but to others it's been given to harden them so that they wouldn't hear and they wouldn't see and they wouldn't understand? What's that all about? First of all, let me pick a few things out on this statement. To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom. First of all, you should note this word you is emphatic. It's in a place in a place that's emphatic. In other words, you disciples, you disciples, it has been given. That's an amazing statement, isn't it? You disciples, it has been given. We do grammar here. <laughs> And this little piece of grammar is passive. It comes out in the English very well. It's a passive verb. That is, you, the disciples, are the recipients of an action. You are not the actors in the action. You actually receive the action. To you, God has given the ability to receive. You did not receive it because you are smart or intellectual or because of any merit on your own behalf or because of some intellectual capabilities. The reason you understand this is because it has been given to you. In other words, if you understand the Word of God, it is the gift of God that enables you to understand the Word of God. So this idea to receive this mystery, the the ability to receive the mystery comes from God. And so then to you it has been given to know what? The secrets of the kingdom of heaven. Those who know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven have been gifted by God to receive them. These secrets or actually this idea of mystery. We talked a little bit about mystery last week. Mystery is something that is hidden but is now revealed. And we see this uh, probably most explicitly in Daniel chapter 2, verse 20 through 23 and 28 through 31. I think that's in your notes. But Daniel 2, 28 through 31, I think, really exemplifies this very well. This is what, what we learn. This, this is the idea of a mystery. It says this, But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. The context here is that Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. And Nebuchadnezzar does not know the dream. Oh, and by the way, he won't tell anybody his dream. He expects his conjurers and magicians to be able to earn their living. Don't just tell me what the thing means. Tell me what it is. And of course, everybody says, nobody knows that. And it's interesting because then his... His magicians and his his conjurers, they all say, that's all information that's hidden with the gods. And in a sense, they're right. Daniel comes along and says, yep, that is information hidden with the gods. It is hidden with the God who gave the dream. And by the way, I know him. And I got access to him. And he reveals things. And so, with that going on, here's verse 28. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days, your dream and the visions in your head as you lie in the bed are these. And he goes ahead and he begins to expound and explain not only the vision, but also what it means. In other words, the mysteries of the dream have been revealed. It was something secret, something hidden, something nobody knew and now has come to light. And Jesus now tells his disciples, he says, to you, you disciples, it has been given by God to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. Something was hidden, and now it is made known. Who is it made known to? It is made known to you, you the disciples. How is it made known? By the gift of God. God has given it to you. And this truth... So God has revealed um, truth to the, to the disciples. And let me make clear here. Spiritual truth is spiritually discerned. 
Spiritual truth must be revealed. I always find it interesting people think they're going to go on a quest and find God. They may go on a quest to find God, but if they find God, it is because God reveals himself and makes himself known, not because they uncovered the right rock or went to the right place or what have you. If God is made known to them, it is because he made himself known to them. Spiritual truth is revealed truth. And here's the, just read 1 Corinthians, the whole, 1 Corinthians 2, but let me just read a few things. What no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. These things... What things? The things that no eye has seen and no ear has heard. What the things that have not even entered into the heart of man. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thought except the Spirit of that person which is in him. So no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Do you get that? Nobody knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received the Spirit... Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God. That, so that, we might understand the things freely given by us, to us, given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught in human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spirituals. Here's the thing. The natural person does not accept the things of the spirit of God. They are folly to him. And he is not even able to understand them. Because why? They are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself judged by no one. For who has understand who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Do you understand? You cannot understand the Spirit of God. Things that eye has not seen and ear has not heard, not even entered into the heart of man, the things that God has revealed to those who love him, and you can't understand them, but God has given us his spirit. And who knows the mind of God? The Spirit of God, and you have his spirit. And the carnal man doesn't get it. Doesn't understand it. Why? Because spiritual truth is spiritually discerned. This is where Jesus is going. To you, you disciples, God has given you the ability to know the secrets or the mystery of the kingdom of God. Now listen to this. But for others, it is in parables. Why? So that seeing... They may not see, and hearing they may not understand. As I said, that sounds very un-Jesus-like. That is, God's truth are hidden to others. One of the, there are at least two purposes of, or two results. of proclaiming the word of God. One is that people's hearts are softened and they believe. And the other is that people's hearts are hardened. People hear God's word and they they respond and receive or they are hardened. In other words, rejection of revelation hardens people's hearts. This is so common. Actually, this passage of text is taken really directly out of Isaiah chapter 6. And by the way, it, this, this quote, hearing they may not hear and seeing they may not understand so that they might believe, this is actually quoted quite often in the New Testament. But this is in Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah is called by God to be his prophet. And he says, here I am, Lord, send me. And listen to this. So he, he sees the Lord high and lifted up. And he sees the seraphim and uh, they, they cover their face. Not even the seraphim will look upon God. Smoke filled the temple of the Lord so that he's veiled. Isaiah can't see him. That's God's mercy. Even the seraphim shield their eyes so that they cannot see God. They will not even look upon him in his glorious beauty. And then he says this. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am. Send me. And he said, Go. 
and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not receive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, how long, O Lord? And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people and the land is a desolate waste and the Lord removes people far away and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land and though a tenth remain in it it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled the holy seed is its stump in other words I want you to go who who will go for us I'll go Isaiah says and what shall I tell them tell them to keep on hearing but you will never understand and keep on seeing but you will never see and how long do I do it Lord until there's nothing left till my judgment has come New Testament authors pick up this idea and they, they and Jesus also picks it up and he says this is why I tell parables the word of God serves as both the means by which a person is saved but they will also be held accountable and judged by God's word when we share the gospel they will no longer be able to say well I didn't know and they will be judged by the very words that they were told This is what Jesus is going says to you, you disciples. God has given you the ability. God has graced you with the the eyes to see and the ears to hear. But the others, they will be told parables so that seeing they will not see and hearing they will not understand. These words became a means of judgment and it sealed their doom. They heard the word and rejected them. And they end up becoming like their idols. It's a really interesting, um, when you kind of trace out this idea of seeing but not hear, having eyes but not seeing, and having ears but not hearing. What does that remind you of? It reminds you of the idols that the, uh, that the people made, huh? right? All through Isaiah, you make idols, and you carve eyes in them, and they don't see, and you carve ears in them, and they don't hear, and you make a little base for them because they cannot stand, and you make mouths for them, but they cannot speak. In other words, you will hear the word of God, and your hearts will become hardened, and you will become just like your idols. Unseeing, unhearing, unable to stand, and unable to speak, you will become dull and inert, and worthless like the idols that you value so highly. Meanwhile, the living God is the God who sees and hears and speaks and does. So then Jesus gets into the interpretation of this parable. I'm really glad that Jesus interprets this parable. Sometimes it's nice when... Then we don't have to decide what it means, right? Right? Because like, well, what does it mean? Well, Jesus already told us what it means. So there's not a whole lot of interpretive matters here. There are four types of soil. And, and the direction I'm going to take is that is this. In these four types of soil that, that are represented here, there's seed sown, there's four types of soil. And I am going to suggest that when we hear the word of God, there is a battle a spiritual battle. And I think that we can see a spiritual battle in these four soils. So the first soil, um, it falls along the path and it's hard. Basically, um, nothing grows along the hardened path. The seed itself can't reach down into the soil and be planted and so the birds of the air come along and say it's buffet time and they eat. In other words, but here's the thing, the, the word is heard. The seed is sown. Bible Jesus says, the seed is the word of God. And the seed is sown. Probably the sower in this passage is Jesus himself, but afterwards, all who proclaim the kingdom of heaven. All of them are sowers, sowing seed. And it falls on a type of soil that is hard. And Jesus said, and this is the type of soil that it, the one... Um, the, the, the seed that falls along the path, they hear, they hear it. And then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. See, Satan blinds the minds of unbelievers. The word of God is veiled, and we read this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. 
Oh, look at that. I'll put it up there. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. We also see it over in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 14 through 3, 14 and 16. Let's see if I got that right. That's not the one I wanted, but... So, how does Satan blind the minds? How does Satan steal the seed? Well, there's probably a lot of different ways that Satan steals the truth of God's Word. One of the ways that God steals, or Satan steals the truth of God's Word, number one, is through false teachers who pervert the Gospel. He might do it through a person's pride. I don't need grace, I can do it on my own. Let me trust in my own merit and in my own works. Who are you to tell me? You don't know me. How dare you say that what I'm doing isn't godly? He dulls the mind, as we see. He's blinded the minds of unbelievers. 1949, George Orwell wrote 1984 and that has become the book 1984 and that's basically a book about um, big government, you know, big brother coming in and watching every move we make. Prior to that, I believe it was in maybe a decade earlier, Atlas Huxley wrote a book called Brave New World. I think Brave New World might be a little bit, I think Huxley got it more accurate. See, he doesn't he doesn't perceive or foresee a world where good big government or big brother um, knows our every move. But rather in Brave New World, there's a, an even more insidious threat. Not big brother. But our own desire for pleasure. And in Brave New World, the problem is not some large, all-seeing government, but people who have become so dull to the desire of truth. They are so caught up in pleasure. They are so caught up, they would take a drug called Soma and it would basically free them from any responsibility. They would never read a book and they would never take... They didn't have to worry about anything. Everything was taken care of them. All they had to do was just enjoy life. And so the idea of being inebriated and sexual freedom and all of these things that were just the things that they enjoyed. They never would hold a deep discussion, never have to think about anything difficult. Everything was taken care of for them. And I look around our world today and I just wonder, did Huxley get it right? Was he a little more closer, at least in the day and age in which we live? Satan blinds them, dulls our eyes to the, the, the necessity and the beauty of spiritual truth because we have so much entertainment and pleasure and everything is at our grasp and at our reach and we can have whatever we want and we don't have to think about hard things. He comes in and he steals the seed. You preach the word of God to them. You tell them, you explain to them the beauty of the gospel and it's like... Yeah, I'm going to go play World of Warcraft. I think I'd rather play Halo for 10 hours a day. Second soil says one where... The rocks who, when they hear the word, they receive it with joy, but they have no root. They believe for a while, and in a time of testing, fall away. So this one speaks of shallowness. It speaks of a rocky soil, but the rocky soil isn't that there's actually rocks in the soil. I mean, these were good farmers. They knew you don't allow rocks to be in your soil. They would have cleaned those out. But what it is, is that there is this hard layer of limestone just below the reach of the plow. So they would have come along and plowed the area and just below where that plow got there would be this hard layer of rock, this hard layer of limestone and the seed would go in and it would go pretty good but it couldn't get down below that hard layer of limestone and eventually because it has no 
root it gets no moisture so there is this veneer of soil and they receive the word of God with initial joy but folks I want you to know this we should receive God's word with great joy but joy is not evidence of it taking root do you understand that joy I think is important when we hear God's word I hope we receive it with joy but let's not substitute joy for fruit And many people have joy, at least initially, but eventually, tribulation exposes its shallowness. I know many people, and I have many friends, who served the Lord for some time and then faced crisis. Perhaps the death of a loved one, perhaps even the death of a child, unexplained. Perhaps a tragedy, losing all of their material blessings, misfortune, misfortune, but testing proves depth. And when they went through the testing, the testing demonstrated that there was no depth of their faith. They heard the good word, but they never understood that sometimes God will take us through the challenges and the trials. And they left the faith. The third soil has to do with the cares of this world and it's choked out by life's distraction. And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches of pleasure and life and their fruit does not mature. You can see the spiritual battle here. Can you not? This idea of being a double-minded person, which James definitely condemns and Luke often portrays the peril of prosperity. The first one, probably, the, the, or the second soil, might have turned away from the Lord or uh, abandoned the Lord due to trials, but perhaps this one abandons the Lord because of prosperity. I am not anti-prosperity. I pray that God has blessed you and prospers you and that um, we do well. And if the Lord prospers you, I would admonish to not become trusting of your prosperity, but to be generous with what God has graced you with. Because there is peril. And I think there's a proverb that says, Lord, don't make me so poor that I steal, nor make me so rich that I stop trusting you. That's a good parable, or a good proverb. Then the final one is the good soil. And I find this interesting because Jesus says, As for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold fast in an honest and good heart. Which tells us then that the heart is the thing that differentiates the various types of soil. And they hold fast with perseverance. That's an interesting statement. They hold fast. It speaks of you actually doing something. I'm holding fast to God's word with perseverance. It's not easy. I have to, I have to cling to it. Somebody's trying to wrestle it out of my hands. But I'm not going to let them. I'm going to hang on to it. I'm going to persevere. There's a recognition that there are challenges, that there are pressures of living the, out God's word. There are difficulties living out God's word. I wish I could come before you and tell you it's the easiest thing in the world. Just hear it and then it's all going to be great. No, we need to discipline ourselves to hang on to what God has given us. This speaks of a long endurance. Unlike the person who went along for a while and then had no moisture and withered up. This is a long endurance. This is good soil. And the seed falls upon it. And it takes heart. Or it takes root. And it produces fruit. Now just a quick summary of this. And again, you've probably all heard numerous sermons on this. Therefore, this represents four general responses to the gospel. And I want us to be careful that when Jesus tells us these four general responses to the gospel, he is not giving us a percentage. All right? He's not saying that 25% of the people that you preach the gospel to will receive it. All right? So one out of four is not the thing he's saying. All right? 
Um, you know, 25% are going to go for a while and then, you know, wither up. And 25% are just not even going to hear it. And 25% are going to get choked out by the cares of the world. I don't think he's giving us a formula like that. He's saying there's four general responses to the gospel. Here's the other thing we should note, that these things happen over time. One does not wither up by the cares of this world overnight. It happens after over a long course of time. Nor does one bear fruit immediately, but perhaps over time. That's perhaps why this idea of the seed is a really, really good illustration, because it just takes time. But we will note that this root that take, or the that the, the plant or the soil that produces is one that is fruit, bears fruit. And fruit is basically that is a life that is pleasing to God. This is the gospel. We sow the seed. We sow the gospel. We understand that when we share the gospel, some will mock us and turn away from it and have nothing to do with it. Some might receive it with joy for, and go on for a while. We need to disciple them and, and break up and see maybe perhaps there's, there's a, a hard layer under, under that, that, that fertile veneer and we need to break that up so that they um, can grow and be nourished and not be choked out by the cares of this world. We need to be faithful with the proclamation of the gospel and I pray that at this church we are faithful with the gospel that we state as we read today that this we believe that Jesus Christ died according to the scriptures that he was buried and that he rose again on the third day according to the scriptures and that by believing we might have life in his name. Now here's the thing about the gospel and about the proclamation of the gospel. You can go somewhere else and you can probably hear somebody do a better teaching on the gospel. You might go here, maybe I'm sure Mark Dever does a much better job of proclaiming the gospel than I do, and perhaps Legan Duncan does a much better job of proclaiming the gospel than I do, and I'm sure that John Piper does a better job at preaching the gospel than I do, but here's the thing, while they may preach the gospel better than I do, they do not preach a better gospel. That is imperative, folks. We preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, and while other people may or may not do a better job, perhaps I do a better job than somebody else, but I will tell you this, there is no better gospel, no matter who is proclaiming it. And we proclaim it and we pray that God bears fruit. And then Jesus goes on and he tells another parable. Um, Some have debated whether or not this is a parable, but we won't get into that. And he talks about this light. Nobody, no one after lighting a lamp covers it with a jar and puts it under a bed or puts it in a stand so that those who enter may see the light. This seems so self-explanatory, doesn't it? Not much needs to be said about this, but we will say something. The word here, we we understand that the word both illumines the way and reveals how things really are. And then he, he, he ends this this statement, so no one after lighting a lamp covers it, it with a jar or puts it under a bed. Rather, they put it on the stand so that everybody can see the light. Look at verse 18. Take, then, take care then how you hear. For the one who has, more will be given, and the one who has not, even what he thinks he has, will be taken away. The one who has listened carefully to God's word will understand it more clearly, but the one who is careless will lose even what they think they know. Take care with how you hear. My very first question, how have you heard the word of God? Has it changed you? What do you do with the word when you hear it? So I guess that's our question. How do you hear God's word? How are you hearing When you hear the Word of God in church, what does it do? We are a church that reads um, the Word of God. We usually have an Old Testament Scripture and a New Testament Scripture. We read them during the service. I was convicted years ago. I'm like going, here we are. And we, we, we have this church and we read the Bible when we get into the sermon. But that's about the only time we read the Word of God. I think we should read the God, Word of God more often in, in, the, in a church service. That just makes sense to me. But, what happens when we read it? Oh, this is our Old Testament reading. I can let this go because pretty soon we'll get to the songs and we like to hear the songs. How do you hear God's Word? Is it just the thing we do 
oh, well, the Old Testament reading probably comes at the beginning, and then they'll do a New Testament reading, and then, then we'll just get through this, and then we'll say a few prayers. How do you hear God's Word? When we read it in church, how do you hear it? Is it just our tradition? Is it just a formality? Or when we read the Word of God, do you say, Lord, let me hear what you have to say to me this day? I pray that when we gather, when we read, and it is our tradition, it's our liturgy, if you will, that we read God's Word. But I don't want to do it just so that I can hear me speak. We read it so that you'd hear God's Word and take it to heart and learn and apply it to your life. When you hear the commandments of God, what does that say when you're reading God's Word or hearing God's Word, whether it's in church or in a song or when you're reading your, your Bible in the mornings or in the evenings or whenever you get, a, get time to read God's Word and you read a commandment, not necessarily or not, not limited to the Ten Commandments, but some sort of command from God, such as, He who has ears, let him hear. What do you do with that command? Do you ask yourself, well, I wonder if I've done that. Or perhaps, you say, boy, so-and-so really needs to hear that one. I think too often that's what we do. Boy, oh boy, that scripture I read today, man, my husband needs to hear that one. I'm going to make sure that he knows it. Or you say, is that me? Am I following that command? Am I doing that with all of my heart? Not just am I doing it, but is it flowing out of a changed heart? What is produced when we hear God's command? How about when you hear about God's providence or God's election? Thank you, Steve, for talking about election this morning. A tough subject, a controversial subject, a beautiful subject. God's unmerited, and we hold here, God's unmerited election. In in other words, you did nothing to earn God's election. God elected you not because he saw some value or merit in you and said, boy, you'll be really good in my kingdom. I need someone like you. I loved you because I loved you. When you hear about that, or you hear about God's providence, do you say, well, you know what, I got a pretty good book about that. Let's see what Wayne Grudem says about it. Or do you wonder at God's vastness and wisdom and kindness? Oh, when I read about God's election, I, I can't tell you I understand it uh, completely. I can define it. I can tell you what I believe. I can tell you what I, I think Scripture is very, very clear on. If you ask me, do I fully and utterly comprehend it, I'd probably tell you no. But do I rejoice and marvel at God's wonder and beauty and glory and get lost in it? Yeah, absolutely, and celebrate this beautiful, beautiful God who has created us and called us. Even when it's outside of my comprehension. The Bible, I think the Bible is very clear. We can know God accurately, but we will never know God comprehensively. You will never know everything about God when we've been there 10,000 years. You will learn something new about God. Why? Because He's infinite. You will never exhaust the knowledge of God. Never. Every day in glory you'll wake up and say, Oh, I'm going to learn something new about God today. Something I never knew. Not in a million years. And here it is. Something new. How glorious that is. Does it produce humility? I don't get that, God. Oh, Father, You are much bigger than I. You are much wiser than I. Does it cause you to fall to your knees and say, Oh, Lord God, I'm just... I don't get it, but you're God. When you read about justification, do you cease from seeking God's favor to earn some sort of... to earn God's favor? God already loves you. He died for you. When you were still a sinner. Not when you got your life back together again. No, while you were a sinner, Christ died for you. When you read about God's justification that He has made you right with Him, do you say, oh, well, let me keep trying harder to earn your favor? Or do you say, the just will live by faith, and I will believe that the just will live by faith, and I will live by faith in the Lord God who has called me? Whatever that means. 
When you read about His sanctification, how He is pruning you and maturing you and bringing us into um, holiness, does it create in you a desire for more holiness? And when you read about glorification, that is, being with Him forever and ever, does it cause for you a longing, a greater longing for God's presence? See, God's Word is designed to produce a fruitful response. It might be rejoicing, it might be a heart that loves Him more, or a, a, a need to go out and do what He says and serve those people whom... He is called into your life, but ultimately God's word produces a relationship with Jesus and you become his brothers and his sisters and you become heirs of Jesus Christ. And that is the greatest fruit. So I will conclude with this. My first question is, are you related to Christ? That's the first thing. Are you related to Christ? I'm not asking if you've heard the gospel. I'm not asking if you even believe the gospel. I'm asking if you've actually put your faith in Jesus Christ. That's what I'm asking if you have done. We often talk about faith as having three components. First of all, it's knowledge. That is, you need to hear what is the truth. The second thing is agreement. That is, you agree with the truth. And the third is that you actually trust the truth. Many people have heard, but they don't believe or they don't agree with it. You can tell them that Jesus died for your sins according to the scripture and say, I don't believe that. Others, you can say, I... Jesus died for your sins according to the scriptures and say, well, I hear that and I actually agree with that. And then walk away and do nothing. And others, you'll say, Jesus Christ died for your sins according to the scriptures. And they'll say, I hear that. I agree with that. Now, what must I do to be saved? And they will call upon the name of the Lord. Have you, are you related to Christ? Have you heard and agreed and put your faith in Jesus Christ? Secondly, How are you hearing God's word? In what way are you hearing God's word? And is it changing you? Maybe slowly, but is God's word changing you? And if so, how? How are you a different person? How do you treat with kindness that that overwhelmed worker at Walmart? God have mercy on me. That customer service person on the phone who's asking you the same question for the hundredth time. Well, they're asking you the same question that a hundred other customer service people just ask you and put you on hold and transfer you to this one. How is it changing you? How do you treat the addict who's struggling with their addictions? And how do we treat those who are different from us, who don't run in the same circles as us? They're not like us. How do we treat them? How is God's word affecting us? How is God's word changing us? Let's stand and let's pray.